Welcome to Future Forecast, a podcast by Oswell Business Forum and myself, where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about sustainability, the future of food consumption, and leading change. We are talking to a person in the absolute forefront of this field, Gunnel Stordalm. Gunnel grew up in a small town in Norway and has since become one of the most powerful voices on climate change, food, and sustainability in the entire world. In 2013, she founded Eat, a global nonprofit startup dedicated to transforming our food system through sound science, impatient disruption, and novel partnerships. Every year, the Eat Forum attracts leaders from around the world to discuss ideas and solutions on how to change the way we eat to drive the health of the people and our planet. She's an important voice at forums such as the World Economic Forum, and she's shared a stage with President Barack Obama. She's won several awards and published a book on her unique story fighting climate change globally while also fighting for her life in 2018. Welcome, Gunnel. Thank you so much for joining Future Forecast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Gunnar, uh, you grew up in a small town in Norway, Mugru. Uh And in your teens... <laughs> it wasn't really a town, <laughs> just to say. <laughs> what would you say it was? Well, it's uh, the rural countryside. So the closest town, which was uh, Kungsberg, uh, like more than 10k away from the, from the <laughs> field I grew up in. So in your teens, you were already convinced that something had to be done about the climate crisis that we were and are facing. You studied to be a doctor and you wanted to be a surgeon, but then life took you by surprise. And most people in Norway are familiar with your background, so we're not going to get into that in the interest of time and topic. Fast forward, though, you started one of the most powerful movements in preventing climate change, and now you're amongst the most influential people in the world. Tell me, how did your passion and engagement for the climate begin? Well, for for climate, I guess when uh, Al Gore and the IPCC won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, for uh, for their work, when climate change emerged as uh, emerged as the biggest threats to to our planet, I obviously, uh, since I was a child, I wanted to make the world a better place and was an environmentalist. So, uh, but I, but I then started working with uh, NGOs like Cero uh, in uh, Norway to push forward for climate action and, and uh, showcase solutions. But I was so frustrated over many years because although we had uh, a growing body of scientific knowledge on what we had to do and and the threats that climate change uh, posed, people still didn't seem to really uh, get that it's it it's here and now and we have to to act fast. And uh, and I've <laughs> I've been ruining so many dinner parties by <laughs> <laughs> talking about climate change is so important. We need to do something uh, and so on. Uh, but then it was a series in uh, in the Lancet in 2009 when the Copenhagen summit failed, and that series of papers framed climate change as the biggest threat to human health in this uh, in the 21st century. And that was a, an awakening for me because then people suddenly started to pay much more attention. Oh, is this a health issue? Okay, then we are more willing to listen and more willing to talk. But that paper uh, series also revealed a lot of co-benefits that things that are good for climate tend also to be good for for people. Uh, and uh, and then then I started thinking, okay, let's uh, put on the white coat and start thinking how can we how can we frame this more as 
a health threat, but also talk about health opportunities. And then I, as you probably know, I married into the hospitality industry and uh, a hotel owner and uh, suddenly ended up on uh, the board of Nordic Choice Hotels. And obviously knew nothing about business, uh, but wanted to uh, to look into how we could run the company more sustainable. And then I was so surprised to see that uh, food and beverage was accounting for as much as 70% of an average hotel's environmental footprints. And obviously I knew that food was a health challenge, uh, malnutrition, undernutrition, overnutrition. But I had no idea that uh, food was accountable for up to one third of the global greenhouse gas emissions. And I didn't know it was the biggest driver of deforestation. I didn't know it had such huge impact of eutri- uh, on eutrophication of oceans and lakes, uh, etc. So it suddenly I stepped into literally a plate of big global challenges that all came down to how we produce our food and what we eat. So then my idea was, okay, we have to set up some internal guidelines for the company on what to serve that is good for people and planet. Uh, and then I went online like, okay, I'm a scientist. I will take responsibility for that. This are science-based. And that turned out to be really difficult because there was nothing looking into what is good for everything because food is connected to basically all these challenges, but we didn't have an answer. And I realized that this is not a quest for a company in the Nordics. This is uh, a question that the world needs to know. I mean, how do we feed close to 10 billion people in just a couple of um, decades from now? How do we feed them enough healthy food without destroying the planet? And obviously, since there was no answers and neither any arenas that could bring all the stakeholders together, I ended up starting uh, EAT together with Professor Johan Rockström and the Stockholm Resilience Center in 2013. And there is a lot of interesting points here and you have a fascinating story. But one of the things that I uh, really latched onto was you saying that you've ruined dinner parties. I, I <laughs> would like to disagree, <laughs> but I have met you at several parties where you can really tell that your passion for the climate is just it's it's incredible. You can speak about it for hours and you really have uh, this ability to get everyone on board and we'll get back to that and your leadership abilities. So you decided to um, address food and uh, we've had this conversation before a few years ago and uh, at the time society in general, yourself included perhaps, uh, was not aware of the magnitude uh, that, that food had in terms of impact on our climate and environment. I read that producing a pound of beef requires the same amount of water as if a a person showered for six months. I don't know if the actual numbers are correct, but it's pretty incredible. And these kinds of facts are not very well known, or at least they're a little bit more known today. Anyways, you put down the work and then you saw a pattern related to the way we eat, produce and waste food, as you said. And then you saw that even though food was something that you weren't necessarily preoccupied with from before. I've never been a foodie. Exactly, (laughs) I I know. And and even though people, or at least the media, would frame it that way in the beginning that you were obsessed with food, it actually didn't have anything to do with food. It was the planet and it was the impact that the food has on the planet. Now, for everyone that are kind of, or like at least more new to this than you are, obviously, why is food production and consumption such an important aspect for the future health of our people and the planet? Well, I mean, that is really the the big uh, quest of our time uh, to get it right on food. I mean, food is uh, not only 
a driver of uh, the biggest health crisis right now. I mean, one out of three people on the planet is malnourished. If we take into account those who are still going hun- hungry, those who are suffering from uh, micronutrient deficiencies and those who are overweight or obese and diet related diseases has now become an epidemic. Uh, so food today is a bigger killer than alcohol, tobacco, drugs and unsafe sex combined at a global level, which is just astonishing. Uh, And we cannot fix this health crisis with more diabetes drugs and uh, bariatric surgery. We need to actually address the the cause and that is poor diets. So that is on the health side and on the uh, environmental side. As I said, food is accountable for for almost one third of the global emissions and at the same time is the biggest uh, driver of uh, uh, biodiversity loss which is our second biggest crisis today and then it's driving a series of other big environmental challenges so unless we actually rethink our food system we are not going to uh, to be able to tackle our Uh, climate and environmental crisis, nor keep people healthy. But it turns out, and the exciting thing about food, which is what everybody is getting excited about when they hear this, is that food is also probably the most powerful medicine for people and planet. There are so many win-wins, so many synergies. So science now shows us that what is good for us uh, is also better for the planet and vice versa. So since we didn't have any answers to what is good for everything. Back in 2013, we set up a commission with the medical journal The Lancet and published this Eat Lancet uh, commission report exactly one year ago. Uh, and that was the first ever effort to actually set scientific targets and on how to feed uh, the world a healthy diet within uh, without destroying the planet along the way. And it shows that it is possible. We can feed everyone enough healthy food so they <laughs> they stay healthy uh, at the same time, actually combat climate change and, and other env- environmental challenges. But that requires a total uh, transformation. We need to really produce things in a much more sustainable way, in a way that is regenerative, so not destroying natural ecosystems, etc., and actually store carbon in the soil. That is a very important take out from the Eat Lancet. Uh, the food system has to become a net carbon sink by 2050. So even, even if we get rid of all oil, gas, coal uh, by 2050, we are still not having, or we are still not standing a chance of achieving the Paris agreement and keeping global warming below two degrees because the food system also have to go from the biggest emitter to actually storing massive amount of carbons in the soil. So this is kind of the the beauty of food again. Uh, The biggest problem can be maybe our biggest solution uh, towards the uh, UN global goals and also the Paris Agreement and is also something that brings people together because food connects the global challenges down to our everyday uh, decisions. So what we are actually putting on our plates is the most important decision we are making for our own health and the health of the planet. And we can make a huge difference uh, over time by making small adjustments on our plates. 
Listening to you speak, I mean, you've probably heard the concept of climate anxiety. I'm sure that you feel it often. You know, all these facts, it's it's very, very scary. I can feel my body start to sweat thinking about everything that we're dealing and how, I mean, even though you, you list the opportunities and I'm like so inspired when I listen to you, I'm also like so incredibly afraid that we won't be able to make those small, if you think about it, decisions in our daily lives. And I'll get a little bit into that, but I, I want to dive a little bit further into the Eat Lancet Commission report that you launched last year or released last year in which you gathered more than 30 world-leading scientists from across the globe to reach a scientific consensus that defines a healthy and sustainable diet. This report came as a shock (laughs) to a lot of people. It includes advice to radically decrease the meat consumption while increasing the consumption of grains and plants. Can you tell us in short, because I know that the report is quite comprehensive, uh, what the report tells us and how you and I and everyone listening as individuals can act on it in order to contribute to the better of our planet? Yeah, so basically it's it's important to, to just take uh, one minute on explaining uh, what the researchers did because they looked assessed the best available evidence on what is healthy diet if we are going to live long healthy lives and they defined food groups and then they looked into uh, into what is the maximum amount of environmental impact that can come from food production and then they modeled this is it possible that 10 billion people will eat this optimal healthy reference diet within these boundaries and that turned out to be possible but the most attention around the eat lancet has been around these 14 grams of red meat per day which is interesting but it has to be uh, explained a little bit more because the researchers actually they don't know whether it's uh, zero or 28 grams uh, of red meat per day but something in between so they have used the middle uh, number of 14 grams so there are huge margins here and uh, the diet is very flexible it can can be adapted and has to be adapted to uh, different cultures and local conditions, different resource, natural resources, etc. Uh, so there is no one global diet. But the main conclusion is that we need to half consumption of meat and sugar at a global level uh, and ultra processed uh, junk food uh, and, and double Uh, production and consumption of uh, healthy stuff such as fruit and vegetables, nuts, legumes uh, and whole grain. So so it's uh, even more important and particularly from a health perspective it's as important to think about what we are not getting enough of today, all the nutrients we are lacking because our, our diets are not very diverse. I mean more than 50% of the world's calories come today from four crops which is uh, soy, wheat, corn and rice and that is basically the ingredients in in all food products so we think we have a lot of choices but actually we we are eating the same stuff all over and over again so basically the what we can do in our everyday life is not to go online and look at the grams per day uh, that is not the the main point about this it's more to think about how can we eat much more and a much bigger variety of of uh, plant-based stuff and also more sustainable uh, produced seafood and less of especially red and processed meat and also sugar and and ultra processed unhealthy food. So it's not that uh, complicated. It's not a vegan strict diet. You can be vegan uh, as well within that planetary health diet. Uh, But the most important is to think about eating more of the good stuff and obviously reducing consumption of the not so healthy. 
and yeah. enjoy that occasionally. And uh, I mean, I 100% agree. I think most people do. It's just that for me, I find that it's hard to find enough alternatives in the grocery store. You know, it's you want to have this healthy vegan or vegetarian food, but then at the same time, it's just like so much processed food everywhere and it's it's pushed in your face and it's cheaper it's easier so it's a supply and demand thing as well and i think it does start with it's both responsibilities both the suppliers but also the consumers and i think if consumers demand it more and when it first comes actually give it a chance actually promote it uh you know invite it into our family's diets that's when we'll start to see real change i think and we still have a way to go and by the way on that note congratulations with your first eat restaurant uh, which is down <laughs> by Vulcan, which i recommend everyone uh going to so this report it got a lot of uh, pushback because having actually having a mostly plant-based diet myself uh, i found the criticism to be somewhat a backlash of the concept of change realizing that we in fact need to undergo a significant change to the way that we consume and produce food in the future and that is uncomfortable we don't necessarily like change everything new is a little bit scary can you tell us a little bit about the most common criticism that you faced in the aftermath of publishing the report and how you respond to that basically it was around the this being like one global diet and don't tell people to eat less meat. It was a Twitter initiative called Yes to Meat that kind of popped up and <laughs> and was a lot of activity around. Interestingly, no one criticized the environmental boundaries. It was only the diets that was discussed. But again, this is based on the best available science. Nutrition, uh, Nutritional science is complicated and it's, uh, it's not possible to lock people in for 40 years and control what they eat. Uh, so there are, of course, uncertainties. But this diet is not radical, as people have accused it for. I mean, what we eat or how the food uh, and the food environment today has become, that is radical. I mean, the, the planetary health diet, it's much more like we used to eat uh, or our grandparents used to eat and quite close to the Mediterranean diet, which is where people have been uh, healthiest and lived the longest. And also the Canadian government at the same time, actually, as the Eat Lancet uh, report was published. They had uh, updated dietary guidelines also with more than 30 independent scientists and they came to actually the almost exact the same conclusion. So it's a mainly plant-based diet, but it's still a flexitarian diet. It's still room for meat and animal products, but not in the uh, morbid amounts we are talking about today. So basically, uh, I think once you read the report, you see that it's so much more nuanced and it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, we need to produce stuff more sustainable. We need to halve food waste and losses. It's crazy that we are throwing away or destroying one third of everything that is produced today, right? And then we need to shift towards more plant-based diets uh, with more healthy food. It's actually, I mean, it, we can get it right on so many uh, levels if we get it right on food. So it's actually a report of immense opportunities. And also throughout 2019, there was several other major reports, including IPCC, a report on land and climate that echoed the messages from the Eat Lancet. So this is now the evidence is backing uh, that we have to transform our food system and it can create massive opportunities and immense cost savings for society. But back to what you what you talked about, that it's very difficult still as as an 
individual to to make the right choices. This is also why EAT started out with bringing decision makers around the table, because one thing is to have the knowledge and we know more than enough to start acting, but it's to get policymakers to actually change policies. And it's about the business community to start coming up with business solutions and new products. And then it's to obviously get investors to finance and invest in the right things, not stranded assets as, for example, factory farming uh, basically is today. So so that is now happening, although it's going way too slowly. This is starting to happening. And one of the, the new flagships we are setting up now after the building on the Eat Lancet Commission and the other uh, knowledge that is out now is an economics commission for the food system transformation to basically look into what is the true cost of food? What is that burger at McDonald's actually costing us if we integrate all the externalities in terms of the healthcare costs, in terms of the climate and environmental damage? then it's not one dollar and a half, right? Then it's a totally different cost picture. So right now, no policymaker is actually aware of what is in action on the food system today costing us and what could we save? How much healthcare costs? How much cost savings could there be? And also the immense business opportunities. So this is something that we believe will be another catalyst in this big uh, transition. And also when when you uh, have evidence like this on, and actually in our, in hard numbers, then we hope to see policy changes from the agricultural subsidies that basically today go into producing grain for animal feed. One third of the grain we produce in the world goes to feeding animals. That is a very inefficient way to produce food for human consumption. And the other part of the subsidies goes into monocrops that are ingredients in junk food. So if we were actually starting to subsidize and invest in obviously R&D for, for how to scale up and make production of uh, healthy food more efficient, that could really uh, transform this. So so that is something we are working on. It's such a crazy industry. I listen to you talk and it's just like when you break everything down, it all makes so much sense, especially the part in which the diet suggested is absolutely not radical at all. The diet that we've adopted today has become radical because what we think of as normal today was absolutely wild many years ago. But we just need to get back to that point, I guess. Uh, and, and, we, and, and and I mean, remember, it was radical a few years ago to talk about uh, Meat Free Monday. I mean, are you? <laughs> are you? You are an activist, right? Yeah. But now it's actually talking about a Meat Monday or maybe a <laughs> Steak Sunday. Uh, <laughs> that is what the science is showing us. But it's not about cutting out. And it's important to say also that livestock will play an important role in sustainable food systems. That is an important part of the, the ecosystem. So it's not about getting rid of meat, but new alternatives are coming that will challenge challenge the meat industry for sure with with products like the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger, etc. Those plant-based alternatives that are getting better and better. And once it's something that is tasting good and it's healthier for you and it's much more sustainable, who will miss the cow? Not many, right? It's so. just getting people to try it, I guess, because I, I can see the skepticism in, in, in many people where they're like, oh, I don't know if it's good or not. But if you taste it and I'm maybe not the best person to ask because I haven't eaten meat for many, many, many years. And just on that uh, thing we're referring to meat free Monday, like before, I guess, 10 years ago. I would have to go into a debate discussion where I'd have to defend why I didn't eat meat 
practically every single dinner I had. Why don't you eat meat? Is because of animals? Are you like a animal activist? What is it? And you know, today it's like, oh, you don't eat meat. Good for you. Like that kind of concept has changed, which I'm very glad. Many people are going to argue that uh, the magnitude of this change, because it is a big change, even though when we talk about it like this, it seems like, okay, you know, let's just choose some more plant-based things. But there are so many components to this industry and to us as humans that need to change. And if if we want to create real change and that people uh, won't, uh, you know, change the way that they consume meat today, which I'm absolutely sure that they eventually will. I sometimes think about the paradigm shift that we're going through right now, and I compare it to smoking. So smoking a few decades ago was not necessarily accepted as an actual health risk to a lot of people. They would find- Doctors were promoting smoking. (laughs) Exactly. You know, it was, no one said that smoking was related to lung cancer and the industry fought it for many, many years. Uh, and today, uh, we all agree that smoking is hazardous and you have to, you know, it's cautions on every single packet. Very few places actually allow you to smoke and there are a minority of smokers. So I'm curious, do you think that there, if this goes so far as it looks like it will in terms of the climate crisis that we're reaching, do you think that at any point in time there will be regulations to us as consumers similar to the way that it's been with smoking like it's only certain days that they will sell meat or <laughs> that you know packages will say this may damage the planet or like do you see these kinds of um, initiatives being introduced in the future well and first of all it's important to say that while every cigarette is bad for you food is a much more nuanced <laughs> is yeah. a much more nuanced discussion so you cannot really compare it although there are many lessons learned from the a fight against uh, big tobacco but for sure there will have to be regulations but most importantly policymakers have to come together across different ministries and create coherent policies because today i mean us is an example i'm always uh, using because it's so striking i mean the the agricultural subsidies called the farm bill less than 1% goes to subsidizing speciality crops, which are fruits and vegetables. And the US, which is self-sufficient with basically everything, is not producing enough fruit and vegetables so the American people can eat the recommended five a day that the national dietary guidelines recommend. So it's a total disconnect. I mean, who did who did plan for this? I mean, and they did. Why don't we know this? No, I know that's what we are trying to get <laughs> get out there. <laughs> Policymakers, wake up! Uh, so, so the regulations will come, and that's that's also why this economics commission will be an important contribution. Uh, contribu- because then they cannot defend to continue business as usual. You need to look at how can we actually redirect subsidies and create everything from uh, taxes and incentives all the way to consumers to incentivize them to eat the right things. That will have to happen at some point. But I personally think that governments, they will follow. And consumers are already demanding better food. They want food. They don't want to know where their food is is produced. Where does it come from? Has there been a lot of antibiotics in the chicken feed? Is this uh, full of artificial ingredients? And is it doing damage to me and to my kids? So we are already seeing that the trend is here to stay literally. And we see already see in Norway that uh, the meat consumption is going down. It's the lowest now since 2010. And we are drinking much less milk and the plant-based products are skyrocketing. Uh, and th- this is not only in Norway. I mean, in UK now, 
now one quarter of the population prefers plant-based milk uh, rather than traditional milk. So this is already happening, but we need policy changes to actually support this and also make it profitable for business. Because today they are beyond some food safety standards. The food industry can do basically whatever it wants, right? And there is no regulation around marketing, marketing to kids, uh, I mean, internationally. Uh, how many ads have you seen on uh, broccoli and uh, <laughs> carrots, right? <laughs> so so this is also to kind of join forces and actually enable business to make a profit. And obviously farmers, farmers and consumers are constituencies that are not going to lose out in this transformation we are talking about. Farmers will be key to actually produce more of the healthy stuff. And obviously consumers are already putting pressure on policymakers and creating demand for the food industry. So I'm very optimistic. What we need is a Norwegian uh, dugnad for the world. uh, And we need to come together to actually see how can we how can we actually adjust things and make things smarter and more effective and actually prevent stuff from happening uh, rather than just dealing with the problems that occur in the other end. And uh, and I'm always using or quoting my um, or the favorite quote from Einstein is that intellectuals solve problems while geniuses prevent them. And a lot of prevention comes from uh, getting it right on food for people and planet. And it's totally doable. Uh, We just need to work together and change policies, change business practice. And obviously, we as consumers need to continue asking for better food that is actually good for all parts of the food system. So talking about uh, intellectuals and geniuses, another thing that I wanted to ask you about uh, is uh, the fact that a lot of people tend to outsource our current problems to the future of technology, believing that change doesn't require necessarily behavioral change, but will come naturally through technological advances. And this is preached at many different conferences around the world. For example, uh, and and there are definitely technologies out there today doing great things, such as um, artificially grown meat, you mentioned it, clean energy, vertical farming, or aeroponics, to name a few. Now, to what extent do you think that technology is going to swoop in and save us? Uh, And are there any specific technologies that we should be watching that you think have promising potential to actually solve some of the problems that we're facing without necessarily requiring human behavioral change? Well, first, uh, it's important to say that this getting it right on food, like the Eat Lancet uh, report concludes, is possible with today's technologies. We don't need to sit and wait on something we don't know today. So, and technology can solve all of this, but for sure, technology will play a really important role and it might be, I mean, disrupting uh, the whole agricultural sector. And there is one uh, report you have to read if you haven't already, (laughs) Isabel, which is from a think tank called Rethink X. And that report got a lot of attention because the forecast was that by 2030, uh, the meat and dairy industry in the US will be bankrupt because the demand will go so much down because of new technology like precision fermentation that makes it possible to produce food that is much more nutritious with huge health benefits and that can compete on taste, texture and is much more sustainable and to a much lower cost. 
So that is now we are we are just at the cusp at maybe the the biggest revolution in uh, in human history. But sitting there and waiting for technologies is we don't have time. I mean, we are in 2020. We have a decade to actually bend the curves uh, before we reach uh, the planet's tipping points and irreversible climate change and and all these I mean biodiversity loss etc. So we need to act already now. But for sure, technologies will will play a crucial role. And it's also I mean it's it's encouraging to see how precision agriculture actually enable farmers to produce much more sustainable and with less uh, inputs and resources sources than before. So big data, AI, and uh, all these new technologies will play a huge role for sure. It's a lot to invest in. Yeah, it's a a lot to be excited about. It's also, I mean, whenever you talk about this, uh, you have so much knowledge uh, on where we're actually at. And I think uh, sometimes it's comfortable to think that, you know, it will solve itself and I'm making small changes here and there, but it's still, it's a pressing, pressing, pressing challenge. And I want to shift gears for a little bit because we've spoken 40 minutes about uh, the planet and sustainability. But I also want to know a little bit about yourself because um, you've tackled a personal challenge uh, in which time was also an unreliable factor. Uh, In 2014, you were diagnosed with systemic scleroderma, a very serious autoimmune disorder that affects the skin and internal organs. Uh, In your biography, The Big Picture, you write about the incredible journey you've embarked on to tackle the life-threatening disease that you currently are able to keep stable. There are very few people who can imagine what you've been through, but as you've voiced several times, the sickness has also functioned as a fuel to catalyze the change that you want to see in the world. For those of us who follow you on social media, and I recommend everyone to do so, it seems like you have more energy and courage than any Olympian (laughs) athlete. Can you tell me a little bit about how this situation and disease has had an effect on you and how you've found and continue to find the energy to just go full forward with full pace to continuing this incredibly important journey towards a better planet? Well, I mean, first, first, I think it's it has been so important for me to have something that is bigger to fight for than my own life. And that was, I mean, the quest we were, uh, the endeavor we were on uh, was what got me out of bed every morning while I was in hospital. And it really helped me also not think about uh, my own tragedy and and being so scared um, of dying. And, uh, and then, but but on the other hand, I also feel quite embarrassed, actually, because I, I've been talking about the big picture and systems change and how everything is connected uh, at the global level. But I, have, I haven't, before I literally hit the wall and uh, was about to die, I didn't understand that this also goes for, for us at the individual level, that you cannot function over time and be sustainable uh, if you are not getting enough uh, sleep, if you are not having some sort of stress-relieving tools. Uh, I've always been good at eating healthy and exercising, but I... I thought it was like waste of time laying eight hours flat out every night. And why why should I do so? I have so much to do. So let's rather get up uh, 5 a.m. in the morning and uh, go for a run and then go to work and then work more. I mean, it was just literally a crazy 
crazy life I used to live. Uh, so this actually being sick has also forced me to seek kind of natural solutions to my own uh, health and well-being. And I started uh, meditating. I started uh, wearing a Fitbit, which I never thought I would do uh, because I was laughing hard about people <laughs> <laughs> running around with these wearables. But I'm now much more, I mean, I'm almost religious about getting it right on eat, move, sleep and mindfulness. And I actually, it's quite, oh, oh, it's not quite, it actually is a small miracle because wh- uh, when I got diagnosed five years ago, uh, it was a deadly diagnosis without any known cure. And uh, now I'm off my transplantation medication and I'm feeling better than I've done over the past uh, 10 years. So, so, and I'm the only patient, uh, as we know, who have been through two of these um, stem cell transplantations with high dose chemotherapy. So for me, I'm very confident that, uh, that obviously eating healthy, but also uh, sleep and exercise and, and mindfulness or stress relieving tools, which uh, it is, has played a huge role. I'm very, very glad to hear that, first of all. Uh, And, uh, well, personally, uh, you know, it's uh, very, very good to see that you're doing better and you look amazing. uh, And I think the planet really, really needs you. So um, I'm glad to see that you are taking care of yourself because it's just, as you say, as important as taking care of the planet. If you, But also, I I forgot to mention one thing that is, is maybe the most important because, again, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something and we can do so much if we work together. And being part of this growing movement of people that want to do something and they see that through through the lens of food, we can actually tackle some of the biggest global challenges. If we work together, uh, I mean, everybody is a stakeholder of the food system. If nothing else, we are eaters, right? Mm. So we can actually make a difference that is better for us and better for the planet every day. And uh, the support and being part of this growing movement, that is maybe the biggest inspiration and what has kept me courageous along the along the way and all all the people that have been not only my amazing team but the, the big stakeholder network and partners that are we are working with but also i mean people who follow follows me on social media who have been sharing along the way i mean i that has meant a lot really and actually, that, that brings me to the, the next question, which is leadership, because the past seven years you've built EAT from, you know, something that was just an idea, uh, a concept that you thought would be to become something that really, truly has global impact and has many employees, many people who know it. I mean, you have world leaders listening to what EAT has to say, traveling across the world to come to your conference. I mean, do you have any reflections on the leadership skills that have made you able to inspire so many people to bring it from something small to something that has incredibly large impact today? I don't think this is about me. I think it's about a very obvious cause. Once you get it explained, I mean, people are just lightening up and saying, I mean, this makes so much sense. And we see the opportunities here. And we also see that if we don't do this, we will fail on our global goals. We will fail on Paris. We will never get people to be healthy and thriving. And this is about, I mean, poverty, this is about so much, right? So I think that that is the magic about food and bringing new people around the table and magic happens. That is what we have seen from 
from basically day one with uh, with the organization and I'm not a leader at all I best case I'm a visionary uh, and I I'm equally excited about I mean people you meet bringing in new dimensions uh, getting me to see other elements that we haven't been thinking of before so so this is again I mean it's a global dugnad uh, we we have started and it's l- really happening now which is amazing to see and and there are so, I mean, we, we can do this. Uh, it is possible and it's so many opportunities on, on the other side. And we are about we are about now to really make big changes. The, the only thing that has to happen is that the speed and scale uh, have to go up. Gunil, we are running out of time. But if you were to gather three key pieces of advice from our entire conversation, uh, and I actually want it to be six pieces of advice, but it may be the same advice to both groups of people. I'm thinking leaders in companies, probably listening to this podcast today, wondering, how do I make my business more sustainable? Um, You've already done this in the choice uh, system. And to you and me and uh, to uh, Edward, our sound guy sitting here, (laughs) what should uh, we do? I mean, what is the three pieces of advice that we should act on in order to all be better people and be leaders of what we hopefully can create better companies? I think for all business leaders that are listening, I think the most important is actually to, to take a holistic approach and not only think about it's not only about emissions. We are dealing with complex system challenges. So think about what impact will your business have on people's health and well-being? What impact will it have on obviously climate and environmental problems? Are you uh, good citizens in that way? And will you contribute to more social equality? And if you start with that system approach, then you can start also mapping your footprint and, and also see where the demand will come because tomorrow and and the future of business will be more than the triple bottom line. It will be about companies that actually contribute to achieving the sustainable development goals and the Paris Agreement. So to all of us uh, who eat, uh, who can actually uh, make a change every day, three times a day, it's Michael Pollan's quote. He is a famous food uh, writer for New York Times, and he says it very simple. It's about eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. Obviously, don't waste it. <laughs> Which is a uh, eat real food. Eat that real is, food. yeah, real food. Avoid ultra processed uh, junk. Eat not too much because portion sizes uh, have exploded. I mean, ballooning. So try to to think about the portion size that also makes you waste less. And then eat mostly plant based. But enjoy a steak every now and then or a burger, whatever your favorite is. But if possible, make sure it's uh, a free ranged uh, happy cow. That's terrific advice. And I like that you summed it up with a little bit uh, more, uh, ironically, I want to say more meat, uh, but (laughs) you summed it up with a little bit of an explanation of what each of those components mean, because it is a fact that we, we do kind of have alternative facts around those things like, you know, eat food or eat food in reasonable amounts and we don't anymore because uh, an industry has shaped a reasonable amount to be a lot more than it used to be and uh, ballooning amounts in in uh, comparison to what we actually should have mm. but uh, Gunil, uh on behalf of all of our listeners and uh, the entire planet uh, thank you so much <laughs> for everything you're doing and, and we can definitely testament to that I know that you don't want to call yourself a leader but you definitely are a visionary and an incredibly, incredibly inspiring person. I don't think anyone can uh, disagree with that. 
Um, but before we let you go, uh, three quick questions. If you could give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would you tell you? Sleep more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I feel that now, and I know you do too. Read Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. <laughs> okay. It changed my life. Actually, that was the next question. Uh, that is can, a book. Do you want to recommend a book or I a can podcast? recommend another one as well. Uh the most mind-blowing book for me has been 21 Lessons for the 21st uh, Century by Harara, the author that uh, wrote Sapiens. Cool. Very inspiring. Where should people go to follow you online? Go. That, I've never asked that question. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm Gunil uh, Stodalen at Instagram. And uh, <laughs> if you search. Are you, are you on LinkedIn? Yeah. Uh, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I? I am. I'm a little bit of a digital dinosaur. I must admit. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I am on LinkedIn and in, uh, Instagram and Twitter, and I think I have a page on Facebook, which is not very active. But go to uh, our web uh, website for the organization, which is eatforum.org. Uh, and thank you so much, uh, Isabel, for the overwhelming uh, and very kind <laughs> words. Uh, not all of them are, are through, maybe, but um, it was a pleasure being here. And uh, thank you for, for talking about this really important uh, topic on your podcast. Thank you so much for coming. The honor and pleasure was entirely mine. You're listening to Future Forecast, a podcast produced by Osmo Business Forum. Tune in in two weeks for more interesting insights on technology, leadership and sustainability with experts from around the world. If you like this podcast and wondering how can I support them, please take a second to give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts because it really does help. And if you have a friend or a colleague that you think might appreciate it, every share counts. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Talk to you soon. Thank you.